I'm Arthur Snell. A major war is taking place on the European continent with Russia's invasion of Ukraine, bringing you a series of special episodes to help you understand the crisis as it unfolds. This is Doomsday Watch. Welcome back to Doomsday Watch. We hope you're finding these war bulletins valuable. A quick reminder that you can support our work on the crowdfunding app Patreon from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. I'm honoured today to be joined by Gary Gersel, who is the Paul Mellon Professor of American History Emeritus at the University of Cambridge, and more importantly, the author of an absolutely remarkable book that's just come out called The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. Thanks for joining us today. And uh, Gary, tell us a bit about your book. Well, it's good to be here with you today. And as as you mentioned the title, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, uh, this is a book I decided to write in 2016. I am an American, obviously. Your listeners can hear that. I've been teaching in Britain for almost 10 years now. In 2016, two events happened that I think rocked all of our worlds. One was Brexit and the other was the election of Donald Trump. And it seemed to me that uh, events of that magnitude, really unimaginable 15 or 20 years prior to 2016, signified to me uh, something that was breaking up in the world, a set of political formations, uh, allegiances, loyalties, sense of what constituted a good life. It seems to me a, lo- a lot of things were breaking up. And my decision to write this book was to tell the history of that breakup. In order to do that, it took me back to the 1970s and 1980s and the birth of what I call the neoliberal order, which is a, a political order that seeks to release the power of capitalism through free markets, entrepreneurs, let capitalism do its thing and with the hope that this would usher in a brave, prosperous uh, and affluent and satisfied world. It came in with great promise, controversy from the very start, uh, but it it triumphed as a political order by which I mean it uh, by the 1990s and the presidency of Bill Clinton, it seemed that globalization, free markets, unleashing the power of capital was the only way to organize politics in the United States and the world. And I tell the story of how that political order triumphed, uh, the trials it went through, and then its breakup in the decade after the Great Recession of 2008 and 2009. Gary, we're speaking, of course, in June 2022 with a major war underway on the European continent. And to some extent, there's a context there. Your book describes the rise and fall of the neoliberal order. And in some way, the end of the neoliberal order seems like a necessary precondition for Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Is is that a fair uh, statement? I think one could say that it is. I should say the book was complete in terms of what I was writing before the invasion of Ukraine. The book came out in April 2022. I finished work on it in October and the sabers were rattling then. Uh, But I think many of us, myself included, thought that Putin would in fact not invade or would invade with limited ambitions. I think in retrospect, uh, we can see that Putin chose this as a moment to not just put his stamp on Russia in terms of a 
society opposed to many core principles of liberalism, both in economics and culture. But he chose this as a moment of statement to the world about another force arising and perhaps associated with other nations in the world sharing his illiberal principles and instincts that was going to oppose the neoliberal world that he sees as dominant, uh, both economically and culturally. Uh, and I think, uh, especially in light of the long essay he wrote, I believe it was June 2021, where he lays out not just his idea for rebuilding greater Russia and not just pointing out all the errors that his communist predecessors made in terms of taking Russia as an empire down the wrong road, but lays out a, a coherent philosophy for living in the 21st century and wanting to put Russia at, at the head of that movement to enact that philosophy. And central to that philosophy is a series of illiberal positions because he holds liberalism in all its forms responsible for many of the ills of the world. So one can understand this if we enter his head and see this from entirely from his perspective. He is taking a stand against liberalism and against neoliberalism. So yes, we can very much understand this moment as further disintegrating the neoliberal order in an international context. Yeah. Mindful of, of, of the scope of your book and sort of what, 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 a, what a big story it tells. And this is a book that for anybody who is uh, aged between sort of 40 and 70, it feels a bit like a narrative of, of your own life story. I was just uh, reflecting on how as a young child, I was very aware of Ronald Reagan as America's president in, in the early 80s. And he, he is a key figure in this book. And it really is uh, a fascinating read. Um, I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to the author. It's one of those books where as you read it, you start to feel that someone is explaining to you uh, the, the insanity of, of, of the world of 2022. And there are some really sort of key moments. I suppose one of those I've already mentioned is Ronald Reagan. And you, you take him to be a really rather substantial figure, not just a kind of B-movie actor who was good at reading out other people's lines. So what, what is the significance of Reagan in this story? He is the key architect of the neoliberal order. He is the one pushing capitalism unbound. He, early on in his life, became a diehard opponent of the New Deal, the political order that preceded the neoliberal order, and even as he continued to admire Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the hero of his youth, youth throughout his lifetime, he came to believe that the values and political economy of the New Deal were inimical to economic growth and individual freedom. He brought to the White House 30 years of reading, thinking, politicking about how to release America from the heavy regulatory state that he associated with the New Deal, with social democracy, and ultimately with communist tyranny, and thus to restore America's promise, which for him was constituted by profound individual liberty, profound individual freedom, untrammeled by a government telling you as an individual citizen what you could and couldn't do. 
But his ability to take apart something that had been very powerful and influential and dominant in American life, that is what signifies his significance uh, as a president. And whether you like him or not, one has to reckon with the work that he did. In order for me to reckon with him in this book, I had to revise some of my own thinking about him. He was a fabulist, but he was a calculated fabulist, and he had political skills that uh, many Americans didn't appreciate at the time. And he was a great communicator in the style of Roosevelt. Yeah. And an aspect of of, uh, Reagan, which perhaps now is little understood, because these days people might call themselves a Reagan Republican, and that's normally a signifier of being within the context of the modern Republican Party, relatively moderate. But uh, Reagan's approach on issues to do with, for example, race relations, to do with criminal justice. And you talk about how Reagan was able, in fact, you describe it, his greatest political achievement was to reconcile a politics focused on restoring white supremacy and godliness with his own neoliberal market orientation. So can you say a bit about that aspect to do with the the sort of race politics in America and also uh, the politics of justice and, of course, injustice? Well, the first thing to be said in that regard is that he was not a mainstream Republican when he ran for office. He was on the right wing of the Republican Party. It's important for listeners to understand that historically the Republican Party had been the party of emancipation and abolition in the 19th century, getting rid of slavery. And for uh, about 100 years, the Republican Party was much more ardent in its commitment to racial equality than the Democratic Party was. So this lasted into the 1950s and 60s, and the favorite son of the Republican Party, who everyone expected to ascend to the presidency, was Nelson Rockefeller, governor of New York. And so uh, Reagan's ascent upset uh, and really demolished that mainstream Republican Party. And uh, part of the politics was a politics of free enterprise, individual liberty, throwing off the regulation of capital, which the New Deal had done so much to institute and the mainstream Republican Party had broadly accepted. Reagan set his face to getting rid of all that, and uh, he was largely successful in doing so. But he also uh, needed another constituency in order to make the Republican Party a majority party in political life. And uh, that constituency turned out to be the white South. And there were many white Southerners who were not ready to give up Jim Crow, uh, segregation, white supremacy. And Reagan used their, their resentment and their anger and sought to appeal to them and to bring in the anger about racial equality or the building of a racially egalitarian society. He sought to bring that into the Republican Party and make it a center of Republican Party politics. He led a revolt against civil rights equality and the 1980s became a decade of very harsh and ugly uh, race relations. Now the the alchemy that Reagan performed that you refer to in quoting that sentence of mine, how do you square free market individualism with mass incarceration, imprisonment, seeking to lock up as many African-Americans as you could? How, that seems to go against the principle of, of, of freedom and free choice. And Reagan did not initiate a discourse on the underclass, uh, but he certainly 
winked at it, gave it his support. And the underclass was a social theory that some groups, mostly African-American, were so far removed from mainstream life and they had, in a sense, become detached from civilization and nothing could be done to reform them. And then this became a justification for locking them up in massive numbers. The 1980s was the birth of the mass incarceration regime. Yeah, and that's one of the many ways in which this book throws up these kind of unexpected connections. I suppose following a a broadly sort of chronological standpoint, uh, we we come post-Reagan quite sort of quickly into the Clinton era. And what's fascinating about that is that a Democratic Party politician, Clinton basically adopted and then expanded the the neoliberal uh, sort of system. Why did that happen? I say in the book that uh, Clinton may have done his more even uh, even more than Reagan to help the neoliberal revolution and the neoliberal order achieve its triumph. And if you look at various legislation that he gave his assent to, creating the World Trade Organization, creating NAFTA, making all of North America of a free market, uh, deregulating Wall Street, uh, and abandoning. Uh, an imposition of regulation and control on Wall Street to end speculation that had been one of the signal achievements of his Democratic predecessors in the 1930s and 40s. I could go on. Uh, The reasons, I think, are twofold. One is Clinton suffered a terrible defeat, uh, not himself personally, but his party suffered a terrible defeat two years after he was elected in 1994. It was the worst defeat by a sitting Democratic president since 1946, um, a long, long time ago. And he lost both houses of Congress to Republicans, something they had not achieved since the early 1950s. And this was a political defeat so devastating that, in essence, Clinton said, well, if we can't beat the Republicans, we must join them. In a sense, he was acquiescent to Uh, beliefs, ideas that had become so dominant in American life that he saw no way for him and the Democratic Party to succeed other than to acquiesce to core neoliberal principles. An element accelerating this embrace was the fall of the Soviet Union and communism between 1989-1991. Never or almost never had a powerful empire decided to disassemble itself so quickly and so completely. This was a a stunning moment. We don't, I think, have time to go into the circumstances propelling the Soviet Union's fall now, but the effects of it were profound in the sense that communism had been capitalism's primary opponent in the world. It had set limits to capitalist expansion and it, it set up all sorts of countries that were impervious to capitalist penetration. And with the collapse of the Soviet Union and of communism, capitalism could become global in a way that it had not been global since prior to the First World War, more than 75 years before. And suddenly the opportunities for capitalism, the erasure and defeat of its most dedicated opponent, helped the hegemony of capitalist beliefs and also caused crises among elements of the left all across the world because the most spectacular effort to build a socialist society had crashed and burned. And 
how do you proceed from that basis? And related to that, one other factor is the IT revolution burst upon the U.S., Europe, in a very powerful way in the 1990s. Uh, and there was a techno-utopianism associated with this IT revolution, a sense that this was a revolution as powerful and as fundamental as the invention of the printing press. And part of the promise of techno-utopianism was that so much data was to be available now so instantaneously through computing anywhere in the world that one could eliminate market risk in ways in which market risk had never been eliminated before. Uh, you would have perfect knowledge of markets. You would be able to make perfect decisions and therefore, therefore markets themselves could be perfected. And if you had perfect markets, what need was there for a state to come in and correct market imperfections? I suppose we need to start talking about the decline of neoliberalism. And from reading the book, I, I, it seemed that there were two sort of cataclysms, one a kind of geopolitical and another more a sort of economic. So I'm thinking of the 9-11 attacks and then the, the 2008 financial crisis. And in a weird way, they're connected. Um, could you sort of explain a little of, of, of that connectivity and how they are both key events in, in the decline of neoliberalism? The... 9-11 attack led to what I regard as the worst foreign policy mistake in American history, which is the decision to go to war against Iraq in 2003. Uh, and further compounding the error was uh, George W. Bush's decision to deploy neoliberal principles in the reconstruction of Iraq. Iraq had a society, had a government that in some respects resembled communism. It was a form of state socialism. And Bush and his supporters decided to take that apart immediately, uh, much as his father and then Clinton pushed what they called shock therapy for Russia and Eastern Europe in the 1990s. In other words, the only way to, to break uh, the dependence of these societies on states that were not doing them any good was to get rid of those states entirely and turn over everything to private enterprise as quickly and as powerfully as could be done. I think long term, it didn't work out that well in Eastern Europe and Russia, and the effects on Iraq were catastrophic. And this also took some of the glow off of neoliberal principles because it was clear that the reconstruction policies, he advertised them as setting the free market capitalism to work in Iraq. It was so manifestly not working. At home, he, he, his dreams were as great as for the Middle East. He wanted to create a free market democratic Middle East that failed terribly. And he wanted to fully embrace neoliberal principles at home and also deliver a message to African-Americans and Latinos that his administration was at the end of the day on their side. And he was going to help them become homeowners, full participants in the market economy. Uh, the only way to do this, given that he was not willing to spend government money on this, was to remove restrictions on who could be issued mortgages and, and accelerating the creation of a subprime mortgage market in housing. Well, you can see where I'm heading to the financial crisis of 2008, which was triggered by uh, the investment, the, uh, the, the investments of 
investors really everywhere in the world of uh, in a housing market in the United States that have become deeply unstable and unsupportable. The bubble burst and stories that have been told about neoliberalism that it would live, lift all boats, that it had within it a capacity for transforming the United States and the global economy. This became impossible to believe in the wake of 2008 and 2009. There was a clear sense that Wall Street was recovering from this great crash much more quickly than Main Street. Government policy, even under Obama, uh, favored the banks over ordinary people who had lost their homes. And this is what really stung the neoliberal order. And this is what made this as an order impossible to continue to survive. And by order, I mean the ability of a set of uh, political principles and policies to compel consent from all kinds of constituencies across the American political spectrum that then becomes a political crisis the center can't hold. So ideas that have been confined to the margins as too radical on the left or too radical on the right suddenly have a chance to bid for mainstream acceptance. Uh, And this begins to get us closer to the moment we currently inhabit in which the authority of the neoliberal order, the, the, the ability of its policies to command respect and support throughout the political spectrum vanish. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, could, we could talk about the final part of your book, but I feel that we've given enough of a taster that, that any, anybody listening to this is going to want to to get their hands on it. So let's avoid the spoilers. But moving sort of beyond beyond the scope of your book, but grappling with the world as it is in, in 2022, clearly we, we have the specter of, of great power conflict, particularly on the European continent, but it, it also is out there as a as a as a possi- as a distinct possibility perhaps in, in the South China Sea. Um, do you see that this is part of the kind of continued evolution of neoliberalism that it that it it has succeeded in undermining democracy so that then you have this trend towards authoritarianism or is it that that it's actually neoliberalism itself has come to an end and this authoritarianism is part of a whole new chapter i think it's the latter uh, i think the author the rise of authoritarianism signifies to me the end of neoliberalism now some people see that differently some people see neoliberalism simply as a technique by capitalist elites to prosper at the cost of popular and widespread affluence. Uh, A lot of people who write about neoliberalism uh, think that neoliberals are indifferent to whether democracy lives or dies and they are as comfortable living under an authoritarian regime as they are under a democratic regime. My own view is that neoliberalism is, is part of a worldview that is more ambitious than that and is tied to notions of freedom that run contrary to authoritarianism. And with regard to Ukraine and the war now, we see a kind of control on the movement of capital that had been unimaginable, extraordinary seizure of uh, freezing of Russian assets and Western banks, uh, commands coming down to private corporations in Russia about what they can and can't do with their capital and investments. And also with all the worries about supply chains, countries are beginning to think about, well, maybe they have to elevate national security over the freedom of capital to move where it wants. Maybe governments have to tell private industry where to build their chip manufacturing facilities. And once you begin to enter that territory, what you're looking at is the reassertion of government over capital. 
of the sort that we haven't seen since the New Deal. And if we can, if countries are doing this in terms of securing chips, one can expect that at a certain point, someone's got to say national security involves the welfare and health of the population of a country. And maybe the government has to begin investing in that. And maybe that requires controls on the movement of capital. So I see these, you know, these are capitalist freedoms. These are not the social democratic freedoms of Roosevelt's in 1941. But we can see how these freedoms are ebbing. And uh, and I would say that doesn't mean that capitalism is going to disappear. Capitalism has many forms it can take. But the form of authoritarian capitalism that is being favored in China, Russia, India, Brazil, other places in the world right now is, is not ultimately compatible with a neoliberal form of capitalism. So that leads me to think we are moving into a different era. And I suppose then, if Ukraine, clearly with, a, with help, significant help from Western states, is able to uh, see off the Russian attack, to regain control of its territory, perhaps excluding Crimea, but certainly its, its um, kind of contiguous land territory, and is able on the back of that to to join the European Union. Would that then see us sort of rejoining that onward march of neoliberalism and, and the kind of would be a major defeat of authoritarian capitalism? Or is it is it sort of too late for this, that that moment has already passed? No, I don't think it's, it's too late for that. Of course, I, we don't know the outcome of this war, right? That's one of the most pressing issues of our time. And I've been listening to you discuss with experts in those areas. And this is one of the most, this is one of the world's most pressing concerns right now. I don't think the triumph of authoritarian capitalism is is baked in. There, there are two other alternatives. One is the restoration of neoliberal capitalism in, in some form. And the uh, th- other possibility is the creation of a, of a different political order, more progressive than the neoliberal order, and grounded in, uh, in some version of what people are calling a Green New Deal, of the revival of social democracy with a uh, – centered on a, on a strategy for saving the climate and saving the planet. There, there are uh, progressive tendencies of that sort that are very powerful in the world. They have been obscured because of the crisis in Ukraine and the crisis of pandemic, but we all know the ultimately the climate crisis is the one that is most pressing on us all and there are forces in the world that want to attend to that sooner rather than later. I think the the fact that there are three possibilities, authoritarian capitalism, the revival of neoliberal capitalism and then a social democratic alternative just shows us how much politics matters. Trump's defeat in 2020 was a huge triumph for democracy, not just in the U.S., but in the world. These authoritarian leaders, they all recognize themselves in each other. Trump, Erdogan, Putin, Modi, Duarte in the Philippines, Bolsonaro, Xi in China. They take strength from each other's victories, and they also are demoralized by each other's defeats. And hence, the importance of politics and those who support say, a progressive alternative to the authoritarian capitalism that we can see so clearly mobilize themselves and make their voices heard in politics in ways that lead to a triumph of progressive principles. So I think the future is 
very much up for grab. And there's a fourth alternative too, which is not satisfactory, which is continued disorder and the inability of any new political order to really establish itself. We are at an extraordinary moment of inflection and transition in five or 10 years. We'll, we'll be looking at a new set of arrangements in the world. Uh, and it's important for those people who want a certain outcome to fight their utmost to, to get there. Well, I think that could not be a better point to stop this conversation. Gary Gersel's book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order, published by Oxford University Press, really is uh, worth reading. So, Gary, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you find these war bulletins valuable amongst the huge amount of information out there. So don't forget to subscribe and help spread the word by rating us five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any other app that has ratings. And if you really like the show, you can support us on the crowdfunding app Patreon. You'll get the shows early, ad-free, and help shape future episodes, all from as little as £3 per month. Just search Patreon Doomsday Watch or follow the link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.